Welcome to Rael Talk, a conversation relating ideas about movement, music, and mindfulness to inspire and elevate your human experience. I'm your host, Britta Rael, and today's episode features Laura Heiner, yoga educator and corrective exercise specialist, who's championing change in the field of modern movement by challenging teachers and practitioners alike to ask, why are we doing what we're doing? Ultimately, for Laura, yoga is a roadmap for living well, not solely a physical healing methodology. And it's through that lens that we discuss her mission and approach to educating the public about certain misalignments between the science and philosophies currently being taught and why we need to change the ways that these practices are being imparted, both in person and through social media. So thank you so much, Laura, for joining me. I'm super thrilled to have you on my show. Um, For those of you that don't know Laura, she is a molecular biologist slash yoga instructor extraordinaire slash corrective exercise specialist. So we're going to break down all of those things, but I'm really happy to just reconnect with you and have you on the show. Well, thanks for the invitation. And yeah, it's great to reconnect. Uh, we were just chatting a little bit before we got started and it's, and it's been a few years since we've touched base. So this is a really a nice welcome audio and visual experience for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I'm excited to just, to just, uh, yeah, shoot the, shoot the S as they say. You can, you can have profanity. It's totally cool. <laughs> Okay. Um, Let's shoot the shit. <laughs> yeah. Well, I would love to, because it's been a little bit since we've caught up, and for people that don't know you, which is probably most of them, um, I'd love to know, like, what's your story if you had a two-minute or five-minute history of you, um, your background in science, and specifically how your yoga practice and teaching practice has evolved over, you know, the last however long, five years, 10 years, wherever you want to take it. Okay. Uh, I'll try, I'll try to make it as succinct, but um, uh, understandable as possible. So sure. as you mentioned, so my background is um, I started out as a professional molecular biologist. So um, I went to college during the time where um, there were a lot of advances going on in gene editing and cloning and uh, I initially went to school to be pre-med, but then decided that, that was not for me after taking my first anatomy dissection um, and got a job actually as an intern in a molecular biology lab and the rest was history. I just loved it and I had an aptitude for it. So uh, that's what I ended up getting uh, a degree in and then transitioning to, to the U.S. I grew up in Canada, so um, I went to the University of Toronto and then got recruited to move to Houston where I did uh, three years of work including some graduate work um, at Baylor College of Medicine for a pretty prolific lab, um, which then kind of catapulted me into the whole biotech explosion, which is happening here in Southern California. So that's how I ended up in SoCal. Um, Came over to help, you know, launch a a company that was using um, gene editing to explore novel ways to look for drugs for different disorders. Um, Specifically, I was doing a lot of work around estrogen receptor modulation, so looking for osteoporosis, um, you know, agonists and antagonists. Um, Is that the premise of biotech? I don't mean to interrupt you, but is that like, biotech is like, let's hack how to fix the body, cellularly, drugs, like? Yeah, I think biotech had its origins from a lot of um, really excellent uh, like uh, investigators that were affiliated with um, grant-funded projects, mm-hmm. right? So a lot of NIH-backed investigators who were just coming upon finding the genes that were, um, you know, expressing a particular protein that had an action in the cell or something like that. And so there was this rapid recognition that, wow, this can be um, something that not only could we make money from, but could be if had the right backing um, put into a scenario where a lot of um, application work could result from it, right? 
So, um, and not every university was going to be interested in funding that kind of stuff because clinical trials are really, really expensive. So it started off with, you know, researchers kind of aligning themselves with pharmaceutical companies. But then when the gene editing and uh, discovery explosion happened, um, a lot of companies decided to just go out on their own, you know, with venture capital backing. And so, and it was, you know, it was a hand in hand with the, um, the dot-com bubble, Yep. You know, so as dot-com started to grow, so too did biotechs. And so I was part of that whole frenzy. Um, it was an exciting time, and there was a lot of really good research that came out of it. Uh, but it grew, you know, very similarly to a lot of things that we're seeing now in the Internet space. It grew too fast, too quickly, mm -hmm. not a lot of regulations behind it. Um, and so it was kind of a free-for-all, you know. And so anyways, during that free-for-all, I started to question whether – um, the reasons that I went into science, which were, you know, to try to help people, um, were still present for me in the projects that I was involved in. Mm. And I uh, came to a, a, you know, very interesting tipping point in my life where I simultaneously uh, discovered that my marriage was on the rocks, my professional attitude towards my job was on the rocks, and I had, you know, I'm trying to mother these kids who each had their own personalities and issues, and I was just stretched so thin that I decided to just, you know, pull back and walk away from science for a little while. And during that time, I wasn't really sure what I was going to do. So I went and got certified as a personal fitness trainer at San Diego State because I figured I always was an athletic person and I wanted to be part of that realm. And maybe I could help people that way while I figured out what the hell I was going to do with my life. Totally. Um, and you're also, yeah. like, you're not, people, like, don't know you. Like, you're not just, like, a fit person like you're full-on like athlete in my opinion like you're oh. <laughs> an older person than I am like but you are exquisitely beautiful and fit in all of the capabilities that I see as like athletes like performance driven athletes like you're a cross-country skier or downhill mostly down, mostly downhill. downhill. Yeah, I've been getting into backcountry a little bit now. Yeah. Yeah, like hiking, fitness, like all of it. I just see you as like the ultimate, oh, like fit, fit woman. Yeah. I'll, I'll take that compliment and, and accepting compliments with grace is something that I've been working on this year. So I'm going to take that compliment. Good. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I've always been very outdoorsy. And um, even though when I was growing up, I never felt athletic, I sort of got pushed into it and, and then discovered that I liked it. And um, I've always maintained that connection to um, the use of physical exercise, whether it's hiking or skiing or whatever it is, to help with the the mind piece, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, but what was really interesting is, you know, going back to the time where I was transitioning out of biotech was I, you know, if you'd asked me to go take a yoga class, I probably would have done one of these to you because like to me, it was <laughs> hilarious. Like these people with their little mats rolled up under their arm and that's, that's not athletic, right? Uh-huh. But, you know, the, as, as life goes, um, when circumstances present themselves correctly, then that, that might uh, be a different opportunity. So what happened was there was this confluence of um, things that happened in my life where um, I decided to dissolve my marriage. Um, both of my kids were going through some pretty significant issues of their own. And um, that coupled with what I conflated my life to be, which was as a scientist, having gone away, I felt like the threads of my life were starting to unravel. Mm. And um, during that time, I, you know, I was also, <laughs> you know, a uh, martial artist. So I had a close friend who um, was watching me suffer through what I was going through in martial arts. And she suggested, let's go check out this yoga thing. And at this point, I was so beaten down and I just really wanted the company. So I said, okay, let's go. Mm. And so I wandered into a beginning uh, hot vinyasa class with my friend and, um, I just remember thinking, God, I can't do any of this. Like, this is challenging. What the hell is going on here? Um, and then at the very end, uh, you know, I had to lay down on a mat and close my eyes for five minutes. And I was thinking, what is going on? I mean, just the voices in my head, just, this is stupid. Uh, is it nap time for adults? What's going on? And I was, and as a yoga teacher, you can appreciate, remember these people that, you know, they're not sure what's going on. So they lift their heads and look around halfway through Shavasana, right? Oh, it's so it painful. That. It's so painful to watch people who haven't understood experientially yet to just let it happen. Let go. Let yeah, go. Let yeah. And yeah. just be there. Um, <laughs> yeah. That was, that was 
funny to look back on. Anyways, um, but what happened was when I left the class, I just remember feeling so good. Like, mm. I felt like, I think I probably slept that night and I hadn't slept very well in a really long time without the use of AIDS. Yeah. And, and I felt like there was hope for me. Like, there was just this glimmer of like, I'm going to be okay. Mm. Um, and through the yoga experience, I just kept going back and going back and um, through the yoga experience. And then I, I ended up getting involved with the um, SRF here in yes. the self-realization fellowship, which, you know, I don't know if you're listening to know about it, but it was founded by Yogananda who also, you know, taught a very um, well-defined methodology of yoga that is, you know, different than yoga asana, but it's more of um, mindfulness and introspection and trusting and, your intuition and all of that. And Kriya. And Kriya yoga, right. So I, I yes. And so I actually ended up, um, I didn't do the Kriya bond ceremony because at that point I started to really dip my toe in other yoga spheres. And I started to recognize that perhaps I was being shuttled into a box that I didn't really want to go into. But I'll tell you that it was really helpful to me, at least that then, to have my mind sort of blown from the standpoint of, okay, I've been this rigid scientist who checked all the boxes of like the degrees, the family, the career, um, the athletics, all of that. And then having everything sort of unravel and fall apart and having no basis for spirituality or any kind of legitimate stone to stand on. Mm -hmm. Right. I was treading, I was treading water. And so I felt like between the yoga practice and between what I got from SRF, I was being thrown a pretty good life raft at the time. Um, so that's how the yoga stuff started. And I got so excited about what was happening in, in the shift that I was experiencing personally um, for me that I, I just kind of decided to do yoga teacher training mm -hmm. like really quickly, like within, I don't know, a year of practicing. And so I did that and I, I actually started teaching yoga quite quickly because, you know, I had already this, scientific background, a personal training background, and now, you know, uh, and then the yoga asana to layer on top of that. So I just started, uh, you know, and again, retrospectively, I see it now, due to the typical Laura is down the road. It was like, okay, let's go do this. Like, if I'm going to do it, let's not it. Yeah, exactly. Let's do this and do it right. So to that end, I ended up uh, teaching a shit ton of classes um and then ended up getting aligned with a corporate yoga entity which you're familiar with um which was where i started to really question what what are we really doing here because um i fell in love with a practice that i thought was fluid in terms of its ability to overlay on a myriad of different people mm -hmm. and what i was being asked to do was constrain the practice into set sequences and to manage teachers and to expect them to teach in a way that had been scripted or was really devoid of any um, personal connection, which to me was, you know, it didn't resonate. Um, yeah. So to make a long story short, after teaching there many years, I decided to go and start my own little studio, which I did, which is called Inhale Yoga and Fitness. Where this we sort was of in married North County, San Diego. Yeah, in Del Mar. Uh -huh. For those people who understand uh, San Diego, they know that Del Mar is a pretty, uh, it's a pretty cush, new money kind of community. But we started the studio that was really funky. Had it was a space that I took over that had been in one way, shape, or form some kind of an asana or yoga studio, but um, was really stark. It was just basically like a long box with nothing in it. Um, so we decided to um, to just create this really chill vibe place where people could go and be recognized for who they were, who they are, and bring in a variety of yoga. So it's not just vinyasa, but to have yoga, a more therapeutic methods. So like we built what, you know, was at that time, the largest rope wall in San Diego. Um, and so we did a lot of rope wall yoga. Um, we did some aerial yoga. And then, you know, teaching yin, which wasn't done really back then. Mm -hmm. So a, a lot of different modalities and, and meditation on the weekends and different things like that. So uh, what was really cool about that experience was I, I sat out trying to build a community that was aligned with the mindfulness, 
the um, personalization piece and the acceptance for all. And I think we really achieved that. And um, during that time, as you know, and I'll tell your listeners, I you know, started to feel really, really bad in my body really bad to the point where I eventually wasn't able to walk without assistance. And being that I had now drank all of the yoga Kool-Aid that I could have, I decided to try to either self-diagnose or to deal with my issues holistically. So I would, I tried Reiki, I tried massage therapy, I worked with chiropractors, I, you know, I did a little uh, functional movement therapy with good mm-hmm. PTs, but nothing was helping. And I finally at the end of one of the yoga teacher training sessions that I had um, put on at Inhale, decided it is time to now focus on me. And I went to seek out some Western professionals. And lo and behold, discovered that um, I had um, completely destroyed my body. So uh, yeah, you, when I remember you in the midst of your uh, teacher trainings and everything, like I remember like you were broken you were like busted ass broken (laughs) and just feeling for you like what happened to this woman like she's so strong and she's such a figurehead in the yoga community like how could that how could that possibly it didn't align in my mind like it didn't align in my mind either right or your body quite frankly (laughs) right and so um and and let me tell you that when it when I broke in quotes it, it was a rapid degeneration it was like there was pain in my body which as an athlete, I knew how to sublimate pretty damn well. But then when the tipping point came, it was like a a floodgate had been opened. And then Mm -hmm. I had massive inflammation all over my body. Um, So I dealt with the the most pressing issue, which was, you know, my hips, basically, you know, I couldn't walk, I couldn't sit, I couldn't get in and out of a car without excruciating pain. Um, So I I ended up, thankfully, at the hands of uh, one of San Diego's most skilled um, hip orthopedic surgeons. And, uh, you know, when I saw him, he said, basically, right, you're, I was 50 when I was diagnosed. And he said, I had the hips of an 80 year old woman. Oh my gosh. You know, he was like, what have you been doing? And so I told him what I, what I do for a living. And he said, ah, that explains everything. Like Uh just very matter of fact. And I, I mean, you might as well have just punched me in the gut because I was thinking, well, yoga, could never have done this to me. It must have been something, it must have been the running I did or the skiing or the whatever. And uh, uh, that's when I had a really serious talk with him and he sat me down and just explained like these movements are so extreme, so outside the ranges of motion. Um, And for someone like you who has (laughs) dedicated your life to honing that craft and coupled with the fact that, and this was a, a piece of news to me, you're a hypermobile woman this has been a recipe for disaster for you. Mm-hmm. And the hypermobility piece was something that I didn't even want to believe because even though I think that a lot of like hip openers came to me easily, there were a lot of poses in yoga that still eluded me. So like back bends, for example, were never my thing. Like I could never really get those really pretty, symmetrical, mm-hmm. deep back bends. And so I just assumed, oh, I'm, I'm just not flexible. And the only reasons I'm, <laughs> I'm at the point that I'm at now is just through sheer will and force, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so what was the actual that, diagnosis for your hips? Like, was so, it? Um, so I had basically bilateral shredding of my labrums. So, and just to let your listeners know what that is, inside of the hip joint, there's actually a specific cartilage that um, it's kind of like a head gasket for your joint and where the, the head of your femur sits in and, and articulates with the actual pocket of your hip. And um, it's almost a complete circle. Um, it's not quite, but mine basically had been torn all the way around in both hips. And not only that, but the articular cartilage surface underneath um, in the socket itself had been completely shredded. On top of that, all the scans that I had done to kind of assess what was going on indicated that I also uh, suffered herniations at my L4 and L5, and that pretty much all the ligaments in my hips had been either fully or partially shredded. Oh my so this was a, a really, really hard diagnosis to get. Yeah, and, and there were other things too, which I won't, I, this is a laundry list of crap. And certainly, you know, I, I know that scans, especially MRIs, will potentially identify things that 
may or may not be something that needs to be dealt with. You know, like a lot of asymptomatic people could be walking around with a body that if you stick in an MRI, they may have a slight small tear in their labrum. But for me, I had completely delaminated the labrums off of my hips. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, so the, so the more accurate diagnosis was I had femoral acetabular impingement, yep. both of the cam and pincer variety of both my hips with a complete um, delamination of my labrums on both sides. So uh, while running a studio, I went through the process of having surgeries that were about five months apart, rehabbing, learning to walk again. Um, and in, during that time, I dedicated myself to try to figure out how I had come to this place of being a person who was a skeptic, a scientist, who read exhaustively, who questioned everything, then had this catalytic moment in her life where she just kind of put herself in the hands of people in the know and didn't ask the questions. Like I basically felt like I had left my own agency at the door, which is kind of what you're asked to do when you come into a yoga room. It's kind of like leave all your shit at the door mm. and just be right now. And so I took it for granted and I had a lot of excellent teachers and, you know, with all the best intentions in the world, but come to find out that one of the issues that and, and, I, and I'm talking about this now, as you know, in my Instagram, it, it, you know, yoga has somehow slipped through the cracks in terms of how it gets um, taught, matriculated, and then disseminated into the public. So right now, and you probably saw there was an article in the New York Times recently that I think the headline was, does every United States American citizen have to be a yoga teacher? Question mark. Oh my gosh. And it was based on the fact that this is called Howard's business model is to just uh, try to convince everyone who comes to a class to become certified in yoga. I mean, it's a great business model, but um, as a result, there are a lot of teachers floating around out there that have very little education. And even with some terrific programs, you know, I, I prided myself on having a really strong yoga teacher training program at Inhale, where we actually did 30 hours of anatomy and physiology. But you know, the baseline for yoga line standards is 10 hours. Now, if you think about it, when you're moving bodies, and especially many bodies in a room, having a lack of that kind of understanding is a little bit scary if you start to think about it. Well, and as, and, you, as you even mentioned with your background in biology and biotech, things are unregulated generally, right? Yeah. Things that grow so quickly and with such popularity become drastically unregulated because it takes time to integrate Correct. into society the, the right things to do and the right ways that we keep um, concepts or businesses or practices or teachings in in integrity right and so same with yoga I mean you hit it on the head like people just churn out yoga teachers because there's I think an overarching assumption that it is the holy healing art of all healing arts and that yoga will fix anything um and so that's that's part of this conversation that i'm excited to have it's just like how to how do we marry that critical thinking mind and the actual science background of movement and you know kinesiology and biomechanics and all these fancy terms with the philosophy and the story and the like depth of spirituality that yoga yoga offers into a safe practice. And so we probably yeah. should, we probably should define some of those things um, before we like jump down the rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a deep, deep hole. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, you, you hit it on the head. I think that the, the um, explosive growth of yoga in, especially here in the West, um, has been, you know, both a blessing and a curse. Mm -hmm. A lot of facets that I still think that um, a lot of the more traditional yoga concepts, and I'm not talking asana, I'm not talking about the physical piece, you know, I think there's a lot of value there for, mm -hmm. uh, you know, laying out a roadmap for how people can live this life. Um, and it's a great thing. But uh, somehow uh, we've conflated the practice, the physical practice with yoga. And uh, there is some, um, how do I phrase this? 
there's definitely something happening at the level of our neurology mm. that when I tell my story to people who are embedded in the community are so quick to dismiss as, well, it must have been you. It, it couldn't be the yoga. It had to be how you were doing yoga. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, I, and I, if there's one thing that I want people to really have an open mind about when they listen to the podcast is like, again, suspend your critical thinking at the door just for one second. Take nothing I say as like being true and question it all when we're done and then go out and research for yourself. Mm-hmm. The answers are out there. They're just not being funneled into the community as um, quickly as I would desire because mm-hmm. I'm not alone. There's a lot of prominent yoga professionals and you know them mm-hmm. who are getting hip replacements who have had spinal fusions. And this is because, you know, we've been living our lives in an extreme physical environment that doesn't necessarily map onto how the body actually functionally operates. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'd love to, um, yeah, (laughs) this is a big, this is a big undertaking. And I think this work is so profound. I'm so happy that you're putting yourself out there initially when I started following your kind of newer vibes on social media about how you were sharing about post post your injury and now this kind of new not methodology but new perspective of being a critical thinker and not just taking everything for truth Um, initially I was a little put off because I was like oh wow what are these like really strong statements that Laura is making that's like, you know, hey, check yourself before you wreck yourself, yoga teachers. Um, But I took those things to heart for myself and I saw them enacted in my environments of teaching. And I really like then was able to say, wow, I have a lot of respect for the people, yourself included, that are bringing these conversations to the forefront because things won't change unless there's a constant knock. My husband always says the squeaky wheel gets the oil, right? (laughs) And it's a damn squeaky wheel. Um, And so I I do want to dive in a little bit to like, let's define really quick how I think right now there's a huge um, popular trend of being very, very technical in classes, both yoga classes or fitness classes. Everybody's like, Um, biomechanics is really important and anatomy is really important and you need to know all of these terms and facets so that you're qualified as a good teacher so can we just break those terms apart really quick Um, and then be able to inform you know some of these maybe misconceptions that are happening in our western practice on the physical side and then we'll dive into more of the like marriage of science and philosophy sure sounds great yeah so from your perspective as a scientist um how do you define you know the differences between biomechanics and anatomy for people that are maybe new to teaching or that are not teachers and want to know like yeah anatomy is really important in yoga Mm -hmm. okay so it's a great question um from where i sit uh Biomechanics to me is how the human body interacts with the world to generate force or to absorb the forces that are put upon it, right? So we, we're not just floating around out here. We make contact with the ground. Mm-hmm. We walk around. We lift our arm to reach for something in the cupboard. This is biomechanics, right? Like how do we do it? How do we best generate force? Mm-hmm. And so I look at the human body as being quite literally your machine. Mm-hmm. And so from the standpoint of knowing anatomy, knowing anatomy is useless unless you understand how the machine functions. Right. Right. In context you know, of like movement. In the context of movement. So I'm not saying that you need to know every, like again, using the car analogy, uh, you don't need to know the inner workings of a combustion engine, but you do need to know that if your car is out of alignment and you continue to drive it, at some point you're going to wreck it, right? Yeah. And so very similarly, um, and I think this is where it overlays on the yoga piece really nicely, is like 
understanding your machine first and foremost and understanding the concept of maybe an, an average machine or just the human form itself, yeah, I think is fundamentally important for a yoga teacher. And especially because if you start to really break down what you're asking of your students, and especially for vinyasa teachers, we can get into more depth if you like on this. Yeah. Uh, but especially for vinyasa teachers where you're asking people to far exceed their you know, the average human range of motion in many of the movements. And then you're also working with individuals who may not even have a full mobility of certain joints. Right. And that, that one size fits all um, set of poses or flow is actually going to be more detrimental to their machine. Right. And this is something that I never had really put together. And again, under the umbrella of thinking, oh, it's an ancient practice, it's healing, and actually it's not. You know, when I went down that rabbit hole, it turns out that modern postural asana is, you know, no more than 120 years old, truly. Um, and Mark Singleton wrote an excellent book about this. And, uh, you know, it's basically the poses that we now um, assign as being yoga poses have been co-opted from gymnastics, from women's fitness routines that were abundant in the UK and Europe and the United States. And so this, it's been basically this mishmash of things that have been put together primarily by men yep. or younger men, but then mapped onto women, usually older, more affluent women in the United States who are looking to get fit. Mm-hmm. So when you start building a house of cards on that shaky foundation, something's going to break and it's, yeah. the cracks are starting to show. Yeah. So anyways, more to your point about, you know, uh, biomechanics and anatomy. I think that what I would love to see for yoga teacher training in the future is functional anatomy. So like the body in motion, learning to understand how forces get generated how the body stabilizes itself first and then what muscles overlay to make the actions happen. I think that's fundamentally way more important than knowing, all right, the origin of insertion for this muscle is here. And you know, yeah. like, that's just not helpful. Yeah. And, and it's overwhelming. Interesting, but. Incredibly. <laughs> unless you are a clinical body worker or maybe a physical therapist or a surgeon or someone that's like specifically needs to understand how those things work or don't work the movement aspect and the relationship in context I think like you said is so much more vital to teaching other people who have no freaking clue or interest in that kind of level of geekiness right right yeah. and and to eliminate the dryness of, of the uh, of how um, academic it is right so um, if you have a sheet that has like, all right, here are the motions of the hip and here are the average ranges of motion and here are the prime movers and here are the agonists and antagonists, these movements, like, and you put it in front of an average person, they're not going to want to consume that. But if you make it more of an experiential, you know, thing where, all right, we're going to talk about the hip complex today and we're only going to deal with flexion and we're all going to like experiment and we're all going to measure each other's like hip flexion with goniometers and like, I think that's when things will start to embed because all the things that your body normally does in the day, like bending over to pick something up or leaning back or whatever, you're going to start to understand, oh, this is flexion, this is extension, right? Mm-hmm. Like, whereas like if you just make someone memorize the, you know, flexion, extension, and abduction, abduction, like they're, sometimes they don't get it. Yeah, like, there's, I, no, I've known there's people, no call to why. Like, there is no call to the why, exactly. And I've known teachers who have been teaching for, you know, decades who still don't know those terms. So, so here's a, here's a great question. Um, I, after taking, so in the last two years or three years, I moved away from San Diego and I moved up to the Bay area. I started working for Exos, which was a huge corporate wellness company. Specifically, they focus on performance sports, um, but they are one of Google's clients. And so they manage all of Google's um, on-campus fitness, wellness, and anything that has to do with movement programs. So because I was doing that, I was really uh, intrigued to take more of my authority, as you said, and learn more about biomechanics and anatomy and even fitness training. So I did my, you know, basic personal training certification. And then I went through a three month 
like thousand hour internship intensive studying sports performance. And for me, I was just so enamored by my ability now to understand, wow, all of these terms and context of movement informs my teaching capacity so much, even if I'm not teaching people how to back squat 300 pounds, I'm teaching them how to sit in Utkatasana. But it really helped me to understand like, and create more of a why. So in my classes, I was experimenting with how do I, how do I blend ultra, ultra technicality and just fluid, like sweet, nice yoga infused class? Because I think there's some value in raising the tide, not only of yoga teachers, but of yoga practitioners to understand these terms that when you say, extend your arms over your head, that's actually false. It's flex your shoulder joint or flex your arm over your head. So what is the importance for, in your mind, if you're planning out a teacher training or if you're encouraging someone to go and deepen their aptitude of technicality, is it important that we get really, really specific on those terms in class? Or is it more important that we understand those terms and then be able to apply them and relate them to our clients or students? So you may not like the answer I'm going to give you. Um, and, and this is where I think I differ from a lot of the people in the, in the pack, the yoga renaissance pack. And I take umbrage to the fact that they're calling it yoga renaissance because it doesn't make sense to me. I'm going to write that down. I haven't heard that one yet. Um, I think we need to take a massive step back and ask ourselves, why are we doing this and where are we starting? And to me, having had the experience of wrecking my body through the poses, the the repetitive nature of the poses, and now having the opportunity to understand more of how the body works, how it generates force, and looking and working with individuals one-on-one, I've come to understand that generally speaking, as human beings, because we work at a desk, whatever we're doing, Postural control is terrible. Most people don't know how to stand. Most people do not know how to walk. Gait is a real issue. Uh, it's, it's tough for me actually to go out and, and walk peop- like watch people walking because I'll be like, oh my God, I want to tell that person to stop turning your feet out or like whatever it is, right? So I, I think that without understanding how a person can actually um, control their posture first, it is useless to to throw them into any kind of a group situation, whether it's CrossFit, yoga, FRC, whatever the modality is, Mm -hmm. because you've got to get that car aligned. You've got to get your machine aligned first, Mm -hmm. stabilize it, and then map movement onto it. So for me, the secret in the sauce that I've tried to develop for working with people and, and also in my own personal rehab has been to back it way up to how am I carrying my body? Like even right now, sitting here talking to you, I have like a lumbar roll under mm-hmm. my back because I need that support and I need that constant feedback. I'm still building those neural connections that have mm-hmm. been Um And so once the postural control is there, then we can start to move people. And what I do is I move them first in the sagittal plane. Like that's it. We master the sagittal plane before we do anything in the frontal or the transverse plane. So to get to like unilateral movement or to like multiplanar movement in a yoga class, I feel like there needs to be a lot of work that needs to go into that. And so for me, like if I was to say like 50 years from now, I wish this is what yoga looks like. It would look more like a martial arts class or a gymnastics class where you start with the basic basic building blocks and then you map something else on top of it and then you go on top and top and you know, there's nothing to stop an inexperienced practitioner to walking into, you know, an overheated room right now and go into a vinyasa class where they're going to do maybe 50 to 60 chaturanga transitions in one class. And, and usually people end up at yoga because they've heard it's good for you. It maybe aligns your spine, but it's like, if you're out of alignment, it's not going to do that. All it's going to do is serve to reinforce your dysfunction. Mm-hmm. So I feel like there needs to be this massive step back in terms of like, Let's look at the human body as a whole and how it, gets, it needs to be carried for efficiency of movement 
And then right. from there, to develop a very personalized strategy for moving people. Right. Which is a way different approach than what we're doing now. And it reinforces, I mean, this is true in yoga asana. This is true in learning how to play the ukulele. This is true in meditating. This is true in acrobatics. Right. Just, just because you learn the foundations doesn't mean you then ignore the foundations. You have to continually come back and practice your chords, practice your dead bugs pose, do sun salutation, like whatever the baseline is, like you have to constantly reinforce that and check that those things are still functioning and in alignment, as you said, right? So that when you do layer them on, you're not going way off of the spectrum of alignment or control or whatever. Yeah, that's right. And so uh, I'll tell you, it's so funny because now if I'm working with a, a person who's come to me with a particular issue and I get a lot of people with hip pain, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and I'll say, well, the, and they'll come back and be like, well, my hip kind of flared up again this week. And well, how were you doing on your program? Oh, I was doing okay, but I took a yoga class. I went with my friend and took a yoga class. And, and I was like, well, Again, it's like, I'm not saying that you can't ever go to a yoga class with your friend, but you need to understand that you need to be doing everything in a completely different context than the rest of the class if you want to move past the issues that you have because they stem from postural control, mm-hmm. you know? And I don't think that's being talked about at all, really, um, or hardly at all. In yeah, the yoga hardly. Community. Maybe like whispers here and there. So. Yeah. If you were to, like you said, in your ideal world, like 50 years from now, how is yoga being taught? Does it make sense to have classes at all, like group classes? I mean, these are, these are the questions that keep me up yeah. at night. Like, how do we reinvent the wheel when the wheel is so prevalent? And, and then there's the, the issue of, or the, the ask of, well, what about these ancient practices and those I think are maybe extend more into the philosophical realm and like the mind and mental matter realm. But yeah, what do we do? What do you think? Okay. So the question regarding group classes. So um, in my period of transitioning now, I have pretty much eliminated all group classes only because I feel like I just don't have the knowledge base to adequately mm-hmm. move everyone in the same prescriptive manner until I really know them. So if I had a class of four people that I've been working with quite a while and I know that person A has a really hard time connecting to their glutes and person B has you know, scoliosis and on, on and on, then I can work with them in a way that I think that um, I'm going to feel like I am giving them the most help mm-hmm. and empowering them to move efficiently right and, and, and in a good way in a safe right. and in a, a wise way um i don't think that the current model of yoga is working and he and he, this is why and this is data that i've collected and is backed up um through some data that uh, i've acquired from other teachers who are also in the know the current um the current percentage of people in the United States practicing yoga is less than 10%. And across the board in the U S yeah. So I think the 10 or maybe it's a little bit more, but basically of the people who go and take a yoga class, less than 30% will go and take another yoga class. And of those people, Oh, I know what the fact was of those people that took that yoga class and go back, the ones that practice consistently, that's 10%. So 10% of the United States population or so. Like which, practicing. Practicing, which tracks, ironically enough, with a percentage of uh, people who suffer from benign hypermobility disorder. Hmm. Okay. So it is my opinion, and um, I think you're familiar with who Alex Crow is, Alexandria Crow. Oh, yeah. Um, she also has a lot of data from the many, many workshops that she's presented um, where she also you know, polls people and has them take the bait and score to find out if they're hypermobile. There is a high correlation between people who practice consistently and hypermobility. So if you walked into an average vinyasa class of people that are there a lot and we whipped out the bait and score, I can guarantee you more than 50% of them are going to score positive, Mm -hmm. which means that the practice has been developed for and promoted to people who are likely 
hypermobile in many of their joints. Right. And yet it's a practice that we tout and advertise as being for all. Yeah. And, and healing for X, and healing, Y, Z right. ailments. Right. Mm-hmm. So, and this is where we really are in a, in a really slippery place now, I feel, because the people who are hypermobile are the ones that shouldn't be practicing a lot. They're the ones that need to be doing more functional movement and strengthening, right? And the people who, who didn't go to that yoga, second yoga class, they knew something that we just refused to see, which is, yeah, they're not hypermobile. They're more in the average range of motion or lacking mobility, which could be facilitated. That mobility may be improved into more of an average range or normal range for a human body through really diligent, mindful movements. Now, baby steps baby steps. People yeah. get really, really scared when I tell them that in the future, I think that vinyasa is going to go away because they love their vinyasa classes. And I get it. I love them too. But the data is overwhelmingly now showing, and especially particularly in women over 35 mm-hmm. in the United States, that the rate of injuries, orthopedic injuries has escalated. You can almost map it year by year with the influx of yoga or the, like the popularity of yoga. Yoga has now surpassed CrossFit in terms of the number of injuries that are presenting at the at, you know, emergency rooms across the country. Like wow. the data is all there, but there is this reticence in the yoga community, unfortunately, that revolves around, again, I think the neurology of what yoga does, it increases our you know, GABA, serotonin, all of the good stuff. Mm-hmm. People equate that and conflate it with the poses and actually the poses need to be, they just need to be like rehauled. They need to be thought about. Yeah. So we could still have a really cool futuristic yoga class, which looks a little bit more like roll out your mat and lay down and explore your ranges of motion and have, just chill out, breathe and relax. But in this really fast-paced fight-or-flight environment we live in, it's a hard pill to swallow because people want to work out like fiends. Yeah. And I'm guilty of it. I'm going to raise my hand and say I drank that Kool-Aid too. But I'll tell you that the biggest gains I'm making in my own personal body and I'm seeing in my clients are the ones that have really backed off the traditional, what is called traditional yoga asana Mm -hmm. and are now working in a really mindful way to understand how to carry themselves posturally and how to move through the world mm-hmm. efficiently. And that to me is exciting. Like how cool is it going to be when we tell people you don't need to kill yourself on the treadmill. You don't need to take a vinyasa class in 105 degrees to get the same feeling that you get at the end of Shavasana, like in the Shavasana. All you need to do is really pay attention to the way you're moving. And quite frankly, you don't even need to go to a studio space to do that. If right. you have, the awareness and the maybe like not inspiration, but motivation to just be connected in your physical and emotional body. Like I get deeper highs, deeper Shavasana highs from sometimes just taking a hike and being really connected to like how I'm moving in my body and in space than any incredible vinyasa class or meditation or anything. So that's a great segue into my next question, which is how as a teacher and a scientist and this person that you are, how do you still incorporate and or do you still incorporate yoga philosophy or the teachings of kind of that other aspect outside of the physicality? And, and do you find that those are still relevant today? Um, the culture, the, the alchemy, you know, like the SRFs kind of stuff, like the Kriyas, that mm-hmm. interaction, because I feel like if we can, we can eventually dial in this, this movement modality that could possibly be appropriate for more than most people or, or more than this very small specific niche of people who are practicing. Yeah. But, but isn't it, isn't it that what people really want to get out of this is the clarity and the peace and the calmness and the like lack and the tools for wellness and mental health. So how do you, how do you bridge those in your classes? Yeah, I think so. It's it's a great question. And I think that um, it goes hand in hand with the science of 
pain perception, mm-hmm. um, the neurobiology of like the um, different brain neurotransmitters that make us feel good, mm-hmm. and yoga philosophy. So in my view, the reason that um, the people that stuck with yoga keep going back to yoga is because they got that shot of dopamine, right? That feel like, but there is more mounting evidence that indicates that it's not necessarily from the actual practice. It's just that you moved your body Mm -hmm. and then you gave yourself a chance to relax Mm -hmm. and absorb that movement. Right. So when I have a new student that comes to me and I can tell that they're really like itchy and they just want to like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to, I just want to move. I just want to move. It's kind of like the reason you might be in pain is because you're moving way too much or you're moving in such a way that you're not paying attention to your body. Mm-hmm. So you're not feeling it when you're moving in, on your mat, but your brain is still recording the pain that you're putting your joints through. Mm-hmm. And that's coming back later when you're not on your mat. So can we just do this experiment of really slowing things down and really breaking things down and understanding how you function, how your machine functions so that when you do eventually go back to your mat, you understand all the concessions you've made to take Mm. a particular pose or to move in a certain way. So for example, if you want to take downward facing dog, let's talk about what that means. We'll measure the joint angles of, you know, like, all right, let's see what your ankles do. Let's see what your wrist flexion is or extension is. Yeah. shoulder flexion, all of it, right? Do you have control of your transverse abdominus? Are you breathing diaphragmatically? Like all, there is a lot that goes into the component of one pose. So never gets talked about, right? Cause it's like you, you start in downward facing dog and you go there again and again and again. And, again. and so once you kind of lay that out and you like, a, you give that person all the information that they need, not only do light bulbs go off in their head of like, oh, no wonder I could never get my heels to the floor, even though I tried, like my, I've got bone on bone impingement or I'm not flexible or, enough or I'm not flexible. <laughs> right. Or it's, it has nothing like, oh, oh, I'm not even, I'm not even breathing adequately here. Right. Like once they understand if I want to take this pose here, are the concessions I need to make, am I willing to take them? Most people won't make the concessions. They'll just opt to take a different pose. Maybe downward facing dog will be for them. I'm on my knees and I'm just reaching my arms forward mm-hmm. and that's just fine. You know? So what, what a great concept to think that like, we're not going to make everybody try to look the same or force them to get into like the, what yoga is looking like now on Instagram. Right. Yeah. And that's, I think where that really juicy opportunity is. And that goes hand in hand with philosophy, which is like, you know, if you read the yoga sutras or, pick a text right it's all about trying to figure out who you are and make the connection to the bigger picture mm-hmm. so that you can navigate through life without suffering or as close to that as we can come right mm-hmm. okay well we've decided we're not living in a cave we're not in an ashram we're not sitting in meditation for six hours a day because we're already sitting in our um, chairs at work six to eight hours a day what is it that our body really needs it needs the neurology to chill out and what yeah. better way to chill out than to get into yourself and go, Oh, all right. Laura can take her wrists like this without passive motion. Most people can't you see this is my hypermobility right here. 90 degrees. Most people are here, but then you're asking me to come into plank a thousand times. No wonder my wrists hurt. Like it's just, yeah. it's all right there. It just needs to be, I guess, codified in such a way that is digestible and, um, and is friendly enough to the people who are really entrenched in the community that still think that there is this mystical um, benefit to moving the body in the ways that we move them on a yoga mat. Yeah, and I think in my experience, especially being up in Techville, San Jose, Silicon Valley, working with the world's greatest engineers and thinkers, yeah, I, I had so many opportunities to teach in that way, like really um, simplifying and breaking things down in digestible ways, but it still felt very analytical and mind forward for the population that I was serving, which all they needed was to do the exact opposite, right? They needed to get out of how does this thing work and get into how does this feel? 
So mm-hmm. part of my um, challenge to myself and maybe challenge to other teachers who are listening is, is there a way that we can, like you said, bring that more um, particular awareness about why and how you're moving your body, if that's appropriate to you in this class setting or in this private setting, with a balance of, can we just like get out of the mindset? Can we just mm-hmm. simply um, allow the yoga to happen, allow the wisdom to happen, the slowness, the, the mysticism to unfold? Can we, mm-hmm. co- can we create that space and hold that line so that, yes, we have technical aptitude and we're really clear and conscious about how we're guiding students through these movements but also giving them possibly like what Ayurveda would say, the, the contrast or the, imba- the serving their imbalances to just mm-hmm. let them have that deeper experience. And I think that's hopefully the direction that we can take this practice through these types of yeah. conversations. I hope so too. And I think that it's going to, if, if the intention is to still get all the, the tenets of yoga, um, imbued into a class that is all about the physical form then that physical form needs to change mm-hmm. because what the the shapes that are being directed right now are not accessible gosh there's a lot of people that you know they can't let's see let's get okay so here's an example i you know i have a student who she can't cross her legs because she's heavy set and she will never go to a yoga class because, she, you know, she can't from downward facing dog, inhale, lift her leg high, step through, inhale, lunge, right? There's never going to happen for her. So if, you, if her perspective is, well, I'm never going to go to yoga because I can't do those movements, then she's never going to be able to dip her toe in the water of like the, what we would consider the mindfulness piece, the more introspective 40,000 foot view on life that we can get when we are really embedded in the true practice. But if she were invited into a place where it could be like, all right, let's get on your back, bend your knees, place your feet on the floor and just observe how far your knees will go side to side, TikTok motion. Mm-hmm. Notice, just notice is the left the same as the right? Mm-hmm. You know? Okay. Is it, uh, it doesn't get your heart rate up, maybe for her, maybe for you or I, it doesn't, but is it valuable? Hell yeah. yeah. First of all, it's giving her an understanding of what her range of motion is, which is something that never is done in a yoga class, right? Everyone's range of motion is naturally assumed to be wonderful. Yeah. Um, and it gives her an opportunity to slow down, which I think is really where the philosophy has its chance to land. Honestly, when we're moving in a vinyasa class, no one's thinking about philosophy. No one cares. They're thinking about how good they're going to look in that two-piece bikini. Or all the things that they have to be thinking about right. physically to do the thing. Right. And, and even, I mean, again, I'm going to quote Alex Crow on this one because, we, you know, when she came to San Diego, we had a great time laughing about, like, uh, you know, Anyasara, where, you know, you're talking about a practice that's supposed to chill you out, right? But how many cues did you get in Anyasara, Right. Bring your big toes together, slight gap between your heels, pull up your kneecaps, tuck your pelvis underneath, kidney loop, engage your core, mula bandha, draw your shoulders up and back, extend your fingers, reach down, tadasana. Like, and then breathe. <laughs> and then breathe. And it's like, like that's not, you know, um, that is not coddling the parasympathetic nervous system, which we as Westerners need. That is fight or flight. And yeah. so... Do you need that 55 minutes of fight or flight to get to that juicy five-minute shavasana? No. Like, frankly, yeah. I'd, be okay with, I'd be okay with a yoga class of the future looking more like adult na- nap time, like just restorative, you know, like just get in, lay down, breathe, listen to someone talk about whatever tenet they want to talk about. Go home. You're going to be a better person. I, I yeah. truly believe that that is the way forward. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rael Talk. You can follow Laura Heiner on Instagram. Her handle is at letsciencemoveyou. 
and you can learn more about her teaching methodology and any of her upcoming workshops or trainings. If you enjoyed the topics that we covered today, I'd love if you subscribe to this podcast. And if you want to contribute to this conversation at all, please leave me a message on my website. Um, it's www.brittarietarael.com. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts and any feedback that you have. Tune in next time and have an amazing rest of your day.